Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. So every human being on this planet, that includes all of you here in this room, you've been created for a unique purpose, a unique mission here on earth. But if you don't embrace that grander mission, you have what might be called a shadow mission, a cheap substitute. See, we are made for this great mission, but the danger is, in default mode, we're tempted to let our lives drift towards selfish pursuits. And this morning, we're launching into this new series called Extreme Heroes, and it's all about these Old Testament characters who were called to and fulfilled their unique mission. Now, the story of Esther in the Old Testament is actually a story of characters who were each given a choice, a choice between a mission and a shadow mission. And as these people choose, destinies get formed and the world is changed. The setting for this particular story is Susa, the capital city in Persia, and it concerns Israelites who are living in exile. That means their homeland was taken over, they were deported, and it happens around 470 B.C., So we're going to dive in here in Esther chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. It says this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linens fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And then it says, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now, the author wants us to understand that Xerxes was a man of immense power. People, his kingdom at this time extended from Asia Minor all the way down to Africa and even into remote parts of India. But he's not exactly an admirable character. Like he likes to show off his greatness. He's very ostentatious, but he has no inner strength of spirit. He constantly needs other people to make up his mind about stuff. And when we first encounter Xerxes, he's in the middle of this banquet, and this banquet lasts for 180 days. Now, just think about that. That is six months of serious partying. And when it's over, in verse 5, what does he do? He throws another party, 
And this one is open to all the common people to show off his great wealth and power to everybody there. In fact, in verse eight, it says, the drinking is literally without restraint. He turns the palace into animal house. And then in verse nine, there's a third banquet, but this one is thrown by Queen Vashti. And here, there are no excesses, no juvenile behavior. By contrast, she looks pretty restrained. But then in verse 10, it says this, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, uh uh-oh, he commanded to bring before him Queen Vashti. Xerxes has been showing off all of his possessions, and now he wants to show off his ultimate possession. And what do you think he wanted to show the people about Queen Vashti? You think it was her brains, right? She's going to come in there and solve complex calculus problems or or her personality to lead them all in a lively discussion of the decline of the Babylonian Empire. No. Verse 11 says, Xerxes wanted Vashti there in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, we don't know all the details, but it's pretty apparent this was going to be done in a humiliating way. But then... In verse 12, this extraordinary thing happens. Vashti says, no, no, thank you. Come and parade myself before a crazed mob after seven days of Miller time? I don't think so. I'm just going to wash my hair. And how does the king respond? Does the king say, you know what? You're right. That would have been really awkward. Sorry I mentioned it. Now look at verse 12. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. See, this struck at his sense of power and dominance, his image. That was his shadow mission. Vashti made him look weak. And so in verse 13, he consults his sages. It says, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the laws and were closest to the king. Now, I think the writer here is poking fun at Xerxes with a little irony. I mean, here's the most powerful man in the world, and he cannot control his wife. And so he takes it to the Supreme Court. He makes it a matter of state. He says, what am I going to do with my wife? She just washed her hair. I can't do a thing with her. He's trying to figure out a way to get back at her. And so they advise him to issue this royal decree, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Now that's going to break her heart, isn't it? That's what she didn't want to do in the first place. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, and literally in the Hebrew here it says, the realm, how vast and magnificent it is. The writer's showing us that the king surrounds himself with flatterers. They're kissing up to him, right, pumping him up. When the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And so the king thinks, that's a good idea. That's what I'm going to do. And he deposes Vashti. Okay, let's move on to chapter two. When the king finally sobers up, he realizes, I don't have a queen, right? And so he decides, I I got got to get me a new queen here. 
And this time he's advised by his personal attendants. Okay, this is not the Supreme Court. These are young men, his bodyguards, high testosterone guys who give him their idea of what he ought to be looking for in a queen. Anybody want to guess what their criterion is going to be, number one? <laughs> beauty, yeah. They suggest he hold a Miss Meads and Persia beauty contest <laughs> where all the provinces will contribute to the royal harem, the best-looking woman from that province. Does anybody here remember how many provinces there were under Xerxes? <laughs> 127. <laughs> that is a big harem. And in the end... The girl who turns heads and makes the king go, wow, when he looks at her, she will become the ultimate trophy wife. Now, I know it's hard for us to believe in our day and age that there was once a culture so superficial that <laughs> middle-aged men would actually try to impress other people with power and wealth and show they could attract a wife that's young and beautiful. But there was a day when a culture that superficial existed. It's hard to believe the human race could sink to such a trivial depth, but that's what happened. And so the king says, yeah, this is a good idea. Let's do this. And one of the contestants is a young Jewish girl named Esther. Esther was an orphan. She lost her father, lost her mother. But she was loved and raised by her cousin Mordecai. They have a very tender relationship. We'll come back to him a little later on. And in the text here, it says that Esther was fair and beautiful. Now, I did a little digging here in the Hebrew language, and the most literal translation is smoking hot babe, okay? <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> That's why it's important your pastor go to seminary to dig this stuff up for you. <laughs> Actually, this is ancient language for a really fine-looking woman. She can turn heads. So she makes it easily through the prelims, and she is selected to be one of the final contestants to go before the king. But before she goes in, she has to prepare. And I got to set this up for you. Because this preparation thing is a big ordeal. So let me here ask a question of all the ladies in this room. I want you to think back to a time when you went on a date with a guy and you wanted it to go really, really well. And I want you to think about how much time did you spend preparing for that date? Okay, we're talking bathing, hair, makeup, wardrobe selection, accessories, fragrances, the whole bit, okay? Now, this is church, so you got to be honest, how much time did you spend? Did anybody here, how many of you ladies have spent more than one hour preparing for a date? Raise your hand up really, really high. Come on, be proud. Raise it up. Yeah, let me see it. Okay. How many of you have actually spent more time preparing for a date than you spent on the date itself? <laughs> okay. Yeah. How many of you actually enjoyed preparing for the date more than that date itself? <laughs> Almost the same number. All right. Let me show you the preparation time involved in Esther's first date with the king. Verse 12, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months, 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. That is a lot of pressure for a first date. I mean, if somebody is not attracted to you after you spend 12 months getting ready, it ain't going to happen, ladies. And so that's what each of these young girls has to do in order to try and turn the king's head. Well, Esther does this, and she wins. The king is more attracted to her than any of the other ladies. She becomes the most beautiful woman in 127 provinces. She outshines them all. And the king, in typical fashion, does what? He throws a party with Esther as his wife. So now, Esther's mission is to be arm candy for the most powerful man in the world. 
And Esther lives happily ever after, right? Maybe not. God has a grander mission in mind. Chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So Mordecai was Esther's guardian, and he sat at the king's gate, which meant that he was one of the royal officials. He had actually once saved the king's life from an assassination attempt. But he won't bow down like the other royal officials to this special noble, Haman. And Haman is upset about this. He will not tolerate this. Esther 3, 5 says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman goes to Xerxes and asks the king for permission to execute all the Jews on a single day. And this king, in his typical clueless fashion, says, yeah, sure, whatever. He doesn't even know which group of people Haman's talking about. And Esther 4.1 says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. Now, we look at this as an expression of grief, but in the culture of that day, it was also a political act. It was an act of protest. It's like picketing the White House. It's an act of extraordinary courage. But it becomes clear to Mordecai that if something productive is going to be accomplished, if the people are going to be saved, it's going to be up to Esther. And so he goes to this young girl that he raised and says, Esther, you're going to have to go to the king and turn this whole thing around. And for very good reasons, Esther does not want to do that. So in verse 11, Esther sends word to Mordecai. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. See, the king is very strict about protocol. He doesn't like it when somebody comes in and openly tells him he's not doing his job right. And the only exception to this law was if the king was feeling gracious that day and would extend his golden scepter and spare that person's life. And Esther also says to Mordecai, you may not realize this, but it's been 30 days since I was last called to see the king. Think about that. They're husband and wife, but she hasn't seen him in 30 days. Remember, he has a full harem. This is not a devoted husband. And so for very good reason, Esther doubts how much influence she has. Now, I think most people, most friends would stop at that point. And they would say to Esther, I understand, don't do it. Never mind, it's too risky. Not Mordecai. He's going to challenge her. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Wow, Mordecai here is expressing faith in someone who doesn't get named in this book, but who is always at work behind the scenes. Verse 14 says, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position 
for such a time as this. I mean, Mordecai's just laying it on the line here. Right? Esther, you know what? The fate of a whole nation, the people of God, rests in your hands. You didn't ask for it, but here it is. And you have not been brought to this point in your life for the purpose of acquiring an exquisite wardrobe, precious gems, exotic fragrances. You have not been brought to this point in your life for the reason the king thinks you have, to be the most attractive woman in the kingdom. You've been brought to this point in your life to be a part of God's purposes here on earth, to work for justice, to spare a people a great suffering, to oppose a man who is evil and vile and powerful. You've been brought to this point in your life to be a part of God's plan to redeem the world. So don't be distracted by a shadow mission. Mordecai helps Esther discern God's activity, God's calling in her life. And he gets in her face. He issues a very strong challenge. Esther, if you say no, if you miss this, as frightening as it may be, you'll miss the reason you were on this planet. Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. This is your moment, Esther. And Esther gets it. So she asks Mordecai to gather all the Jews in Susa to fast and pray for her for three days because she does not want to try to accomplish this mission on her own beauty, cleverness, and influence. She knows her only hope is God. And in verse 16, she says to Mordecai, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and here are some words that are as magnificent in their courage as Mordecai's were in their challenge. And if I perish, I perish. Wow, what a woman. This is not just some babe for the Lord. This is one tough as nails, courageous woman. I am going to the king, and if I die, I die. You know, Esther, it was amazing here. The faith that she expresses is incredible. Meanwhile, Xerxes, this goofy party animal king, I think had no idea what he signed up for when he made Esther the queen. He doesn't have a clue. You know, whenever I think of Esther, I'm reminded of this story that broke a long time ago. It concerned the Mattel and Hasbro toy companies, the ones who make Barbie and G.I. Joe dolls. See, they were the subject of this elaborate prank. You may have heard about this, but there was this group calling themselves the Barbie Liberation Organization, the BLO. And they purchased hundreds of these G.I. Joe dolls and Barbie dolls. And what they did is they took their voice boxes and they switched them. And then they put them back on toy store shelves. And so the voice boxes that were originally in the Barbie dolls are now in the G.I. Joe dolls. And the voice boxes that were originally in the G.I. Joes are now in the Barbies. And hundreds and hundreds of kids, they bought these toys and they brought them home. And when they would pull the string on G.I. Joe, he would say things like, let's shop till we drop. And then they'd pull the string on Barbie and she'd say, attack, eat lead, cobra, right? Well, Xerxes thought he was getting a Barbie and he ended up with a G.I. Joe. <laughs> yeah. Esther had a choice between a superficial, shallow, shadow mission, beauty queen, or a grander purpose for God. She chose the latter. Let me pause for a second in this story and ask you a couple questions. This is where it gets personal for you and me. First question is this, what is your shadow mission? Now, everybody has one. If you go into default mode, if you let your life just kind of just drift along, where will you go towards? 
You know, maybe it's projecting an image that's an attractive image to people on the outside because that's a big deal in our culture today. Maybe it's making more money. Maybe it's acquiring power and status. Maybe it's about fun and leisure, some hobby you obsess over. Maybe it's just sitting around watching TV. But what is your shadow mission that keeps you from pursuing God's greater mission in your life? Second question is this, who's the Mordecai in your life? Who is that spiritually wise person who knows you and helps you to discern God's activity, God's calling in your life? Someone who is honest enough to challenge you when you're settling for that shallow, shadow mission. And who are you a Mordecai to? Who do you do that for? See, in our culture today, increasingly, folks have nobody, no Mordecai. Recent survey revealed that, quote, Americans are far more isolated today than they were two decades ago. A growing number of people say they have no one, no one in their life in whom they can confide. See, we keep getting richer and richer in stuff and poorer and poorer in people. So if you don't have a Mordecai, let me encourage you this way. Just pray. Pray for God to send you one. And look around in your relational world. You know, a good place here at Heart Church to find a Mordecai is joining a small group. If you're not a part, come talk to me after the service. Talk to somebody out at the info center. We would be happy to find a group that would fit you, some people that you could do life with. So this beauty queen, this trophy wife, she fasts and she prays for three days. And then she puts on her royal robes and walks right into the king's inner court to wait for the king. In defiance of the law, life or death hang in the balance. And then there's that moment when the king comes out and she sees him. And he does extend that golden scepter. So she knows she's going to live at least for today. And in Esther 5, 3, the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be given to you. Now, don't be deceived here. Okay, it sounds at this point like she could have anything she wants. But this is really just king speak for, you know, what do you need? I'm in a good mood today. Okay, he doesn't mean this literally. If she said, you know what, I'll take half the kingdom, his tomb would have changed really fast. You don't ask for half the kingdom in a moment like this. This is more along the lines of, Esther, would you like to be in charge of the remote control tonight? Okay, something like that. And Esther knows this, right? She knows. <laughs> she can't say, well, you know what? I would like you to revoke the unalterable law of the Medes and Persians and put down your chief of staff. Now, Esther has street smart. She knows this king. And so what she says is, I'm going to have a party. And I would like you and Haman to attend. So the king and Haman, they go to this banquet that Esther throws, and they're drinking wine, and the king says in Esther 5, 6, now what is your petition? It'll be given to you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Folks, Esther shows great skill here. The king, by attending this second banquet and acknowledging his favor of her, has already practically agreed to her request. I mean, she's outmaneuvering everybody here. And now we're close to the climax of the story, but first there's a side story we have to cover. This is Esther 5, 9 to 13. 
It says, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that neither he rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. <clears throat> Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. You see, Mordecai had a shadow mission. It was called more. More wealth, more power, more applause. And when you're living for a shadow mission, it is never enough, people. It's never going to be enough. He can't get no satisfaction. So his wife, Haman's wife, suggests that he build a gallows 75 feet high and have Mordecai hanged on it. And Haman likes that idea. But that night, the king can't sleep. And so he asked his servants to read to him. And what he wanted them to read was the annals of the king. Anybody want to guess what the annals of the king is about? The king. Yeah, right. You guys are sharp. Okay. So they start reading, and they happen to come to this story about a guy named Mordecai who had once saved the king's life but had never been honored for it. Well, the next day, Haman comes in to see the king. He doesn't have a clue what the king had read the night before. And the king says to Haman, Haman, what should the king do? What should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks to himself, oh, I know who he's talking about. Yeah, buddy, who else would he want to honor but me? And so Haman answers the king in Esther 6, 7, says, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Even the horse gets a crown here. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the king says, great idea, Haman. Great idea. Now, can you imagine this next moment? When the king says, Haman, the man the king delights to honor is Mordecai. And you get to be the guy who pulls the horse. Great idea, Haman. <laughs> okay, from here, it's pretty much all downhill for Haman. Esther throws that second banquet. People attend. The king is there, and she tells the king the whole story about how she and all of her people are about to be executed. And this weak, fickle king says, who's going to do that? And Esther says, this wicked man, Haman. The rest is history. Ironically, Haman ends up being hanged on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai. Yeah, and at that point in time, the king needs a new chief of staff. And of course, this king, he can't make a decision, so he turns to Esther and says, Esther, who would you recommend as my chief of staff? And guess whose name Esther nominates? Mordecai. So Esther ends up setting Mordecai over the house of Haman. He receives all of Haman's position and wealth. 
And then Esther reminds the king that the edict concerning death to the Jews still stands. And so the king says to Esther, well, now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. So Esther is now writing legislation in the name of the king. And it turns the city of Susa upside down. And listen to the end of the story here. This is Esther 8, 15 to 17. It says, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And get this, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had ceased them. And folks, this is the basis for a celebration that is practiced today in Israel, the Feast of Purim. All because, goes back to one guy, who is willing to be candid with a young woman and say, who knows, but you have come to your position for such a time as this. And one young woman who was willing to say no to a shadow mission of safety and comfort and wealth and say yes to God. Wow, what a story. But now, now it's our time. It's your time. Do you realize that you are where you are for a reason? I don't know why. Maybe you don't know why. But you have been given what you've been given, and you are where you are for a reason. It may not be as dramatic as Esther's, but you have a mission, and you have a challenge. Now, the bad news is, in our own strength, we will default toward our shadow mission. The good news is, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And we are a part of a much bigger story, a much bigger mission, people. It's God's story. It's God's mission. And it's actually what's going on behind the scenes throughout this entire book. Did you know that the book of Esther in the Old Testament is the only Old Testament book that never mentions the name God? The word God doesn't appear. I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because, as is often the case in our lives, God is just off stage. You can't see him, but he's the main character in the story. I mean, the writer keeps bringing this up. There is a law that is unalterable. There is a will that will not be overcome. But it's not the law of the Medes and the Persians. And it's not the will of the king. I mean, how is it that of all the women in the empire, a young Jewish girl named Esther would be made queen? And that of all the people, a Jew named Mordecai would be the one to save the king's life? How is it that the king would have insomnia on the very night the gallows was built for Mordecai? And that the story read to the king that night was of Mordecai saving the king's life? How is it that the noose that was intended for Mordecai ended up around Haman's neck and that the king's ring given to Haman ended up on Mordecai's finger? How is it that the people who marked the Jews for destruction were themselves destroyed? See, the writer wants us to understand that even in exile, no Jerusalem, no temple, no Sanhedrin, unseen, unnamed, unknown, in unlikely ways, in mangers, on crosses, in cubicles, in carpools, God is present. God is at work. 
He was for Esther and people. He is for you as well. And who knows, but you have come to your position for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm amazed week in and week out as I open up your word how the text just jumps right off the pages. And though this story happened so many years ago, 2,500 years ago, it still speaks to us today. So God, I pray that we would be inspired, we would be encouraged by Esther, by Mordecai, by your hand at work in this whole situation. But I pray that more than that, we would recognize that we too have a mission. God, would you let us know what that is so we don't waste our days on some cheap substitute, some kind of shadow mission, but that we would be a part of your great purpose here on this planet. God, I also pray that we would think about that question, who's the Mordecai in my life? Do I have someone who really knows me enough, who I have invited in to speak truth, to challenge me when I'm living my shadow mission, to, to call out God's activity and what I need to be doing for Him? And who could I be that for? Lord, the truth of Your Word, it, it's timeless. And so I pray for us that we would not just be inspired by this story, but be transformed by this story that we would take these questions, we would wrestle with them <clears throat> until we have an answer so that one day when we stand before you, we would know that we have fulfilled the mission that you have for us here on this planet. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.